0: If you have your Bibles, uh, take them and turn um, all the way to the first book of the Bible, Genesis. Uh, Genesis chapter 10. Seems like one of the strangest passages in the world to start a new year out uh, with, but uh, it's a great passage. And uh, some of you who have been part of our congregation for some time know that uh, back on January 8th, 2023, we started a short series on Genesis chapter 1 to 11 called The Beginning of Everything. And, or the first chapters of everything. And so this is my opportunity to conclude that. We had some bumps along the way and we took some uh, side paths, but we have uh, this week and next week to conclude that uh, little series. And Genesis chapter 10 is an odd chapter. You might think, well, what a strange chapter to open up and uh, preach from. And uh, yet it's a fascinating chapter full of help for God's people. I'm not going to read the whole chapter for a few reasons, but Uh, I will read the first verse and the last verse so you get a sense of where this list of 17 names is going to end up. It begins this way in verse 1. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. And then he lists the sons that were born to these three young men. And then in verse 32... He concludes with this These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies in their nations. And from these, the nations spread above on the earth after the flood. So, as we come to Genesis uh, 10, just recall it's part of this series, the first chapters of everything. And uh, they are the beginning of the explanation of why there is something and not nothing. You may ask that question again and again in your life, whether you're young or old. Why is there something and not nothing? Where did it all come from? The biblical worldview tells us very clearly from Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God. God was already existent. God is uh, eternal. God, uh, there never was a time when God was not. There never will be a time when God it not is. Uh, but the world had a beginning and everything in it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so Genesis 1 to 11 describes um, this, uh, the, the first uh, centuries of the world and how it came to be and uh, God's purposes and intent for it. In fact, there are sort of two creations, if you can put it that way. Uh, in uh, Genesis chapter 1 all the way till about uh, chapter 9, before the flood, there is the first creation and God created a world. Uh, A beautiful world, a perfect world, a world, though, which turned very quickly and rapidly to wickedness because of the sin of Adam and Eve. As a result of the wickedness of the world, God judged the world through a flood, through a universal flood that destroyed the whole earth. Everything that had breath in it died. And so you come to Genesis chapter 9 and you get get the beginnings of a recreation or a reboot of the world, so to speak where God saved eight people through the flood, and from those eight people, he recreated, or he recreated the world for those eight people, and then those eight people then repopulated the earth to where we are now. Human nature didn't change, because he says very clearly in chapter 9 that the inclination of every heart is evil from its youth up, but God's way of dealing with humankind changed. In the first creation, It was judgment for his word and the broken word. In the recreation, there is grace and mercy and a desire to fulfill the promise that he had made in Genesis 3.15 that he would provide a redeemer through the seed of the woman. When we come to Genesis chapter 10 then, it is one of the most helpful chapters in the Bible because it describes God's sovereignty over the nation's it's helpful because it provides answers to our origins. Where did we come from? I don't know if you think about that. I, well, a lot of people do because they're part of Ancestry.com, and they have family trees, and they want to know. Well, um, how far back can I? Tra- tra- how far, Bart? <laughs> <laughs> All right. How far back can I trace my roots? And it's a desire that many of us have and feel strongly about. And so, when we come to chapter 10, it provides answers regarding our origins, the roots of every single human being that has ever been born since the flood. I have two aims this morning. The first is to help you see that your place in this world has meaning and is determined, that your life is lived before God, regardless of your ethnicity, your passport or your ancestry. All of us have the same God in common. The second thing I hope, or the second aim I have, is that to show you that the goal of Scripture is to get us to Jesus Christ. The goal of Scripture is to fulfill the promise that God made in Genesis chapter three fifteen that he would provide a seed from the woman who would crush the serpent's head, and therefore redeem us from our sins, I'll do my best to show you those truths through this text. Aware, though, that as we are talking about, there, there is a battle going on in all of our hearts. There's a battle going on in our hearts that resists truth. There is a battle going on in our hearts that resists the Word of God and the explanation of everything that God has given. And so with that in mind, we think about this text. I read uh, yesterday on an app that uh, one of our elders showed me about praying for the world, that there are now over 8 billion people in our world. And that among those 8 billion people, there are nearly 7,000 languages. Does the scripture account for that 8 billion people or those 7,000 languages? I believe it does. The table of nations, which is what's described in this genealogy in Genesis chapter 10, is what we would call the fourth chapter now of Genesis. Genesis is is structured or divided into 11 chapters, marked by a particular Hebrew word which I won't bore you with. This is chapter 4, and it begins, These are the generations of the sons of Noah. Chapter 4 includes Genesis 10 and 11. They are a unit together, and so keep that in mind. Genesis chapter 5 begins in, actually, eleven ten, Chapter 11, verse 10. And so in this chapter 10, God confirms his blessing. You remember God said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So here we see God's blessing actually being described and fulfilled with these nations that are populating the whole earth. In chapter 11, in the first nine verses, we see God's wrath again in judgment upon mankind because they did not obey him to spread out over the whole earth. And so together, these two chapters describe what happened after the flood. What happened after the flood. That's why the title of the message is The Dawn of The world take two. Genesis chapter 10 covers about 300 years. If you're trying to put it in timeline, there's probably about 300, 340 years between the end of the flood and the destruction of the Tower of Babel and the dispersion of the people of God. It's a verbal map of human history There's nothing like it in ancient literature. There is no other document ever found yet in ancient literature that is anything like Genesis chapter 10, that lays out an account of human history, of where they have come from, of where they went to, of why they live where they live. But here we have an account of the nations of the earth as they spread out after the flood. What I want you to see and understand is that what the scripture tells us and what it's describing here in this particular chapter is that every single nation, every single human being ever born on this earth after the flood, can trace their ancestry back to one of three people. Shem, Ham, or Japheth. You can dig into this further on your own, but there is a People have studied Genesis chapter 10 uh, thoroughly and deeply, and not just Christian people, but they have studied it linguistically, anthropologically, archaeologically. And the truthfulness of what's described here and the spread of the nations across the world and the connections between language groups is what you find described in Genesis chapter 10. It's an astonishingly accurate document about the dispersal of humankind across the earth. The implication of that are are many, but one of them, there is one God. We are are one family. The humanity is one people. We We are not random people groups that all sort of evolved in different parts of the world at different times of human history and have no connection to one another. No, the Bible describes men and women as a united humanity, all tracing their roots back to Shem, Ham, or Jathab, and ultimately back to Adam. As a result, there is only one Savior that is needed. And as a result, there is only one salvation, or way back to the Father. And as you read this on your own, hopefully today and through this week, not every single nation that's described in the Old Testament is mentioned here. But enough is given to make the point that humankind is one. We are one people. We are one nation. For all its diversity, we are one nation, one world under God, to steal from the U.S., right? They say one nation under God. Well, I would say the Bible says we are one world under God. In other words, God is the creator of all peoples. The verbal map of the nations given here lists 70 people or peoples, individuals, peoples, and places. It's a number that indicates completeness, not comprehensiveness. It's a way of indicating that all that we need to know about the unity of the peoples of the earth is contained in these 70 names. God has given us everything we need to know to make the connections back to one people. It's interesting, there's no mention of Israel in this list. There is a hint that God will move towards the Hebrew people through the name Eber, Eber, which we'll discuss in a moment. The point is simply this, that God has all the nations in his hands. And this figure of 70 is a fascinating one to trace through the Bible, which we don't have time to do this morning. But clearly, God has in sight the redemption of all these nations. You come to Jesus sending out his disciples. He sent out how many disciples? 70 disciples. Which is an implication that that Jesus realized that he was sending those 70 out to the 70 nations, to the whole world, that we have a gospel for every single human being. There's no exclusivity. There's no group that should be kept out of hearing the gospel. There is nobody that God says, I never want you to hear the gospel. God's intent is that every man, woman, and child hear the good news of the gospel in Jesus Christ. And that's implied by the 70 sending out of the 70 disciples. And then you come to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2. And in Acts chapter 2, which I'll, I'll read probably some point this morning, we have there described that the people from every nation were gathered in Jerusalem, and people from every nation hear those who were filled with the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues, declaring the wonderful works of God. A reminder there that the gospel of God is to reach every single nation, tribe, and language. This is our Father's world. One of the implications of this as you go over to the New Testament is I often quote, Acts chapter 17, I think it's such a pivotal um, speech that Paul gives on Mars Hill, but listen to what Paul says there. This is, he's speaking to a bunch of philosophers on a hilltop in Corinth. The God who made the world and everything in it. It's a fascinating statement. The God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth. He's the master of the whole earth. He doesn't live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And then note this. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Where does Paul get that from? He gets that from Genesis 10. He gets that from a conviction that God made the world and everything in it. There is only one God. And out of that, as Paul is now looking back, he says, the nations of the world belong to God. And God has set the boundaries for every single nation and every single people group, where they would live and when they would live. So Jephthah and we'll do this so quickly. Jephthah, Genesis chapter 10, verses 2 to 5. Now notice, Moses reverses the order. He wants to dispense with Jephthith and Ham fairly quickly so he can get to Shem. Because he wants to trace, and here it is, he wants to trace the lineage of Jesus Christ. Which we'll mention in a couple moments. So Jephthah. Jephthah, if you follow this and you read those who have done a ton of work on this, is the father of all the Indo-European nations and languages. His descendants went north, then east and west. They populated Europe, India, Persia, Greece, Rome. Peoples would have made their way from Russia, likely across the Bering Sea into Alaska, and then down through uh, North America and South America. And this is really fulfilling the prophecy that Noah made that God would enlarge the territory of Jephthah. And so in Jephthah, you see the spreading up of north and east and west, a massive group of people and languages and nations. And then you come to Ham. In Genesis 10, 6 to 20, a lot more verses are given to Ham. And Ham's people group went south. And there's four people groups primarily um, uh, connected with Ham. They populated uh, northern Africa, which would be uh, Egypt and Libya and Ethiopia. The southern part of the Middle East, which would include uh, much of Arabia. And much of the Fertile Crescent. And as you read the list of names here, these were some of Israel's most bitter enemies. The ones that they had some of the the most um, significant conflicts with. It's also very likely that Ham's descendants account for the Asian peoples. Uh, I don't know a lot about this, but uh, they, they came from, uh, from the Sinites that are mentioned here. And the word sin is a common word in the Orient. Actually, there's a, there's a dynasty in China known as the Sin Dynasty. It's a word that uh, means purebred, and many emperors uh, used sin as a title. There's a, actually a study of China and the nation and the people of China called sinology. And so there's a very likely connection between all the Asian peoples and Ham. One particular uh, descendant of Cush, one of the sons of Ham, is Nimrod. You never want to name your child Nimrod, it's a strange name. But Nimrod is mentioned in verse 12 and, or 8 and following. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on the earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Aked, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. Fascinating, the land of Shinar. Some of your heads might be going, I've heard that before. Remember Achan in the book of Joshua? Stole a bunch of goods from the remnants of, what was it, Jericho? He stole a beautiful robe from Shinar. A lot of implications between him stealing that robe, but nonetheless, uh, from the land of Shinar. From the land he went into Assyria, he built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Calah, and resin between Nineveh and Kala, that is the great city. This is important to stop on Nimrod for a moment. I'm convinced that Nimrod is the first Antichrist of the Bible. By Antichrist, we mean small a. We mean those who live in complete and utter rejection and rebellion against God, those who use their skills and their purposes to Uh, harm humankind and to pull them away from the worship of the one true God. His name actually means, we shall rebel. Nimrod is uh, one who uh, established a kingdom. This is the first use of the word kingdom in all of the Bible. He was a kingdom builder. Uh, He was a mighty man. He founded this first empire with naked aggression. His empire included all of Mesopotamia, both Babylon or Babylonia and Assyria. And he established the two great capitals of the ancient Near East, Babylon and Nineveh. And we find ultimately the destruction of Babylon in Revelation chapter 18. His influence continues until the end of this age. He gained control through naked aggression. He was a tyrant. When it says he was a mighty hunter, the implication is most likely that he was a mighty hunter of human beings. He was vicious. He was voracious. He was a tyrant. He organized peoples into cities and into a significant empire. The Assyrians were known as one of the cruelest peoples, if not the cruelest people ever, to inhabit this ancient world. Nimrod built cities, not altars. He was the one that was the founder of Babel, which was an expression of independence and rebellion against God. says he was a mighty hunter or a mighty man before the Lord. It's a fascinating phrase. It means that whatever he did was not outside of the sight of God. That as he structured the world and as he corralled the world into that kingdom, he did it before the watchful eye of God. Then there's Shem. Shem is, his descendants populated the Middle East, the Semite peoples. It's from Shem's descendants that likely the Hebrew came from. Ebar means Hebrew, um, is translated Hebrew, and it's a reference to the people of God. And now Moses quickly wanted to get us from Shem, or from, for Japheth, Hem, to Shem, to show us that through Shem's line, the promise of Genesis 3.15, Would be continued. He speaks of an individual called Peleg, and it says in for Peleg in his days the earth was divided. I think that's simply a way of saying that this son in the line of Shem was alive when God came down and scattered the peoples of the earth. Points. Quick summary, but points: there is one God to which our roots bear witness, and we all live our lives before Him. As you read this text, you and you read Genesis uh, eleven, which we'll look at next week. The point is made again and again: that it is God that scattered the nations; it is God that distributed the people; it is God that uh, gave them their languages. It is God that rules over the nations. It's God that disperses the nations. It's God that gives the nations into various leaders' hands. It's not a random world in which nations just pop up here and there out of their own power and their own concern. We could go through the Bible, through Judges, through Daniel, uh, through Revelation, and show again and again and again that God is the God of all nations. And it's a wonderful thing to know and it's a wonderful thing to have in our minds that that there is no random nation. There is no nation that is outside of the hand of God or outside of the guidance of God or that lives somewhere outside of the awareness of God. And this is why then we can speak of all nations being accountable to God. Not just the Christian nations, not just the North American nations, not just the European nations, but every nation in the world is accountable to the one God who created them. And every nation of the world, then, is a beneficiary of the promise of God who will send a Savior. The second implication of all of this is, as I hinted at earlier, every single one of us belongs to the same family. There is no inferior people. There is no inferior nation. It is such a sin to look at a a particular person or a particular language group or a particular nation and say, somehow they're inferior to me. The Bible doesn't allow that. The God that we worship doesn't allow that. Every single person made in this world, whatever color of their skin, whatever language that they speak, whatever geographic location they have, is made in the image of God just as you and I are. And their worth and their value is just as much as we might think our worth and our value is. It also says something about how we treat one another then and how we strive together with one another as a nation that we fight this tendency to consider people as less valuable or less worthy or somehow inferior to us because every single human being can trace their roots back to one of three men who ultimately can trace their roots back to one man, Adam. And as Luke makes clear in his gospel, Jesus Christ The Savior of the world traces his roots all the way back to Adam. The implication of that is then there's only one Savior for the world. There's only one salvation for the world. See, all the world then, all the nations share a singular problem, sin. Rebellion against God and estrangement from God. And there's not one path to heaven for those that live in South America and another path to heaven for those who live in Africa and another path to heaven for those who live in Antarctica. And there's not one problem that they have and a problem that another people group have. We all share the same problem. It's rebellion against God. It's our turning our back against God. It's saying to God, I don't want you to rule over me. I don't want to worship you. So I'm going to serve created things and not the creator. This is why it makes such sense then. When, when remember, I find this always fascinating, the, the phrase. It's funny, but it's true. When John the Baptist is baptizing people and, and one of the disciples sees Jesus Christ walking, and remember what they say? Behold, the Lamb of God Who takes away the sins of the Europeans. All right, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the North Koreans. Am I getting it wrong? What is it? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. One Savior for all men and women, young and old, One Savior. This is the the beauty of the plan of God that the Savior of the world would come from the people of the world. And this is why the, the genealogies now narrow down to Abraham. And Abraham will be a descendant of Shem. And then Jesus will be a descendant of Abraham. And the human Jesus, the seed of the woman, would be the promised deliverer for all mankind, for any who would put their trust in Jesus Christ. We've just come through Christmas, a time in which the children of God and people around the world are reminded that the birth of Jesus Christ marks his taking on real humanity. When we celebrated Christmas this year, what we celebrated in part was the Amazing protection plan of God that way back when the world began and man first rebelled, God made a promise that there would be one born of a woman who would crush the serpent's head. And when we celebrated Christmas this year and remembered the birth of Jesus Christ, a bell should have gone off in our heads. God, you fulfilled your promise and you sent one born of the woman to be our savior. In a few months, though, we'll come to Good Friday. And it's a time when we will remember there that his death was caused by the serpent who bruised his heel. Or not caused by, but in his death, the serpent, the ancient dragon, Satan, bruised his heel. But at the same time, it was the moment when Jesus Christ bore the sins of all who would put their faith in him. He bore the sins of the world. He died in our place as a human being. But then a few days later, after Good Friday, we will come to Easter Sunday and we will focus on his resurrection and the crushing of the serpent's head and then his ascension as Jesus goes into heaven, which assures us of our victory. And so in this text, we get the reminder that there is one gospel for one people through one Redeemer of all, Jesus Christ. I got to this passage I I want to get here. Um, Revelation chapter 5. I want want us to hear this because Revelation 5 connects us all the way back to Genesis chapter 10. And notice what Revelation 5 says. Let's start maybe in in, in verse 8 of Revelation 5. And when he had taken the scroll, that's Jesus Christ, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the land, lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. And listen to this, you ransomed people to God from every tribe and language and people and nation." That takes us all the way back to Genesis chapter 10 and reminds us that God's plan of salvation is for people of every tribe and nation and language and people group. Hallelujah. For the breadth of our salvation. And so no matter what 2024 holds for us, remember that God holds the nations in his hand. There is not one rogue nation in this world that is independent of God. Not one. Thank the Lord that he is the Lord of heaven and earth. We need not fear. And secondly, as we come into 2024, don't lose sight of Jesus Christ. Don't lose sight of God's provision and gift for all humanity. Don't close your heart towards somebody. Don't close your heart to yourself. Don't think you are outside of God's love or outside of God's care because of the language you speak maybe or the place that you live or the background that you have or the ancestry that is yours. Never ever think that you are outside of the love and care and concern of God in the reach of Jesus Christ. Just look to Christ. I need you, Christ. May 2024 be the year for some of you where you find Christ as your Lord and Savior. For many of us, may it be a year where we grow in awe, awestruck at the plan of God in rescuing us from every corner of this world to be one of his children. Amazing gift. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. I thank you for a difficult passage, even like Genesis chapter 10, which is a beautiful passage. I thank you for the hope that is in it. I thank you for the explanation that is in it. I thank you for the purpose that is behind it. I thank you for the breadth that is contained in it. I thank you for the way that it settles so many questions in my mind about my place, and about this world, and about what you're up to. Father, I pray that you will take that particular chapter and explode it in the hearts of your people today and throughout this week. Thank you. We need not fear, Father, any leader in this world, any empire in this world. None will be able to crush you. None will be able to defeat you. For one day, Christ will be Lord over all the kingdoms of this world. And I thank you for Christ, our Savior. Turn our eyes to Christ, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.